Uh, so this morning, we have the privilege of hearing uh, Ben Nicka uh, preach to us this morning. Uh, he's fresh back from Oxford. So, are, yeah, so are we going to get some jet lag or like, I think, I think we'll get some clarity from, from Ben today. Um, but let me pray for us uh, and then we'll dive in. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you for Ben, and Lord, I thank you for um, ministering to him uh, overseas, uh, and Lord, may uh, you speak through your servant, Ben, this morning. It's in your name in which we pray these things. Amen. 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 Thank you, Ben. Yeah, if I look a little wide-eyed and crazy, the jet lag's almost done, um, so I apologize. And just as a word of warning, we're going to start in a really dark place, but trust me, it's going to get better because we're talking about the scriptures that we just read and uh, you can't beat those texts, can you? Wow. So it's good to be back here in worshiping at Restoration after a month's absence. It was five Sundays. I visited um, six different churches in England. They all call themselves Church of England, and none of them look exactly like us. So if you think to yourself as an Anglophile that by participating at Restoration, you get a little bit of English flavor, think again. Yeah. Um, but I admit it's a rather dark week to be assigned by our local body, Pastor Rick here especially, to stand here and proclaim the hope of the gospel. Um, yet into this hour of darkness, this hour of murder and war, is coming a great light. And that is what we proclaim here. That's the teaching of the ascension. But let's begin with a counterfactual exercise. Um, a counterfactual is a historical what if. For us today, let's ask, what if Jesus had not ascended to the throne of heaven in the middle of history and been coronated king of kings? What if his angels hadn't confidently proclaimed that Jesus, like this predicted son of man in Daniel 7, was going to come back in the clouds just as he left and rule over all of humanity, bringing justice and shalom? What if none of that had happened in history? And Paul engages, the Apostle Paul, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, he engages in a similar counterfactual asking, what if Christ had not raised from the dead? And he concluded in that passage that his preaching would then be in vain, and so would our faith, and we would be hopeless, and we would still be in our sins, subject to judgment. So what if Christ had not ascended to heaven? Why do we mark this day? Such a question can focus the mind if we let it. Now, I can't establish this question definitively, and it would be a fun conversation to have in a small group setting, but, and it certainly is the case that counterfactuals suggest unravelings of all sorts of uh, adjacent facts that kind of get out of control. But let me just suggest one thought which might put into frame um, this truth in our teaching about the ascension. I put to you that without the ascension, horror gets the last word here on earth. In Joseph Conrad's The Heart of Darkness, the main character, Kurtz, sits at the center of the story. He's an evil man, and as he's dying in the belly of a ship, he utters his final words, staring into the darkness of his soul, humanity, and that dark night, and all he can say is, the horror, the horror. And many times in human history, and perhaps in our own lives, only such simple words can do justice to experience. And we ought not to look away from that. David Brooks, one of our family's favorite commentaries, uh, uh, you know, writers, said of what happened this week in Uvalde that certain stories in the paper were almost unreadable. True enough. But 
we ought not in a world with Birkenau and the killing fields and Rwanda and indeed the evil of King Leopold in the Congo that Conrad wrote of, even for a minute, think that Uvalde or Buffalo are even close to the worst that humanity has to offer in history. Let's be disabused of the historical and imaginatively ignorant innocence that lingers over our country and over so many people all the time. The truest monument to human achievement could indeed be said to be the gravestones and unmarked graves of the murdered and starved. And apart from the ascension, these would get the last word because the world would be without hope. And the best we Christians could hope for is to be whisked away on a ship sinking, <laughs> whisked away out of the ship sinking into the mire of sin and suffering here on earth. But the ascension did occur. And as it says in Acts, he is returning. Jesus, the God-man, did ascend to the throne. He is at the right hand of God. Right in the middle of history, the ascension occurred. And praise God. And this makes me think of another favorite line from literature from Ivan Karamazov in Dostoevsky's novel, the same name, who says, at the world's finale, in the moment of eternal harmony, there will occur and be revealed something so precious that it will suffice for all hearts, allay all indignation, it will redeem all human villainy, all bloodshed. It will suffice not only to make forgiveness possible, but also to justify everything that has happened with men. And friends, because Jesus ascended to the throne, we can have that indomitable and secure hope. History is secure and coherent despite everything. Our world, this world, will be restored to an inner coherence and goodness. Our persons will be restored to inner purpose and peace. We are free to serve and give ourselves to this world and each other in hope. And this is clear from our passages today. So let's explore this ascension through each of these three angles offered. We'll talk about the king long promised in Luke 24, a king who is all in all in Ephesians 1, and a king coronated and coronating in Acts 1. So first, a king long promised in Luke 24. So here we see Jesus speaking to his disciples about how to read all of Scripture. And he starts by saying that his life and passion represent the fulfillment of all of Scripture, the culmination of every truth and every teaching of the, the Scriptures that they had in hand at the moment. But it's not only the Scriptures that Jesus fulfills. And this is crucial because the Scriptures are not merely a religious text, not even close but they're a unique interpretation of all human history from the beginning to the end. Jesus fulfills human history right in the middle of human history, and this is important for us. Uh, the British theologian Leslie Newbigin once shared a story about a Hindu scholar in India. Maybe you guys have heard this. This guy set him straight on the nature of the Bible. And here's what the scholar said. He said, I can't understand why you missionaries present the Bible to us in India as a book of religion. It is not a book of religion. I find in your Bible a unique interpretation of all of human history, the history of the whole of creation and the history of the human race, and therefore a unique interpretation of the human person as a responsible actor in history. And this is unique. There's nothing else in the whole of world religious literature to put alongside of it. This scholar is saying that the scriptures claim to tell the history of the world 
and to describe the purpose and direction of all history in existence. This history starts with creation, then fall, and then God promises in his judgment at the fall to come and do something about what happened. And that promise extends from Abraham through the people of Israel all the way up to the time of Christ. The promise is elaborated in various ways that God through the nation of Israel will wipe away all tears and remove the sting of death. He'll bring justice and wisdom to rule in the hearts of humanity through the holy city Jerusalem and through his spirit. The promise says that one day there'll be a king so perfect and powerful, so tender and wise that all the earth will come under his beneficent rule and be restored to wisdom, or to justice, and to shalom. This promise started at the occasion of humanity's rebellion and elaborated through God's relationship with the Jewish people hung over all human history, holding out hope. And Jesus taught his disciples here in Luke 24 that all this hope for for the foundation of the world, <laughs> hold on, all this hope for the earth found its fulfillment in him, a man who grew up poor in Galilee, that he was the promised king, the promised priest, and the promised prophet. So when Jesus ascends at the end of Luke 24, his disciples were allowed to understand that ascension. They were witnessing the course of human history changing. God had kept this central promise. All things would be made new here on earth. All things would be ultimately blessed. And when the first Christians said, Jesus is Lord, they were telling their hearers that the entire order of the world, all of creation had changed because Jesus had become Lord of all right in the middle of history. That history was starting anew, under a new authority and a new rule. And it is this same story which reached its climax in the work of Jesus, and it continues to this day in the ongoing work of Jesus through his people here gathered. And so when one becomes a Christian, we're joining this story. It's not a life of empty piety or hope for escape from the earth, but it's a stepping into this story this rule of the King Jesus ascended to the throne who is now ruling over the earth and will one day come to restore all things just as we celebrated last week here in looking at Revelation 21. And this story, friends, says that horror doesn't get the last word. Rather, the last word is Christ. And it can reshape our whole lives because Jesus is not relegated to mere religion, but this story is for all the world and he is all in all, which takes us to our next point from Ephesians. So let's turn to Ephesians in this king who's all in all. And Allison was, um, blessed us with a reading of this passage, and what an exciting one to read. I should say that when we read our Lord Jesus Christ in this passage here in Ephesians, it's helpful to remember that this is an elaborate title. You could read Lord as king or ruler or master, and Christ is the title as well. It means the anointed one. So when you read the name, you could just say, Our King Jesus, the anointed one, and remember that he's piled on with titles. It's all about who he is and what he is, and it's captured in his name. But in this passage, Paul is straining with everything in his mind and in his vocabulary to give us a true vision of Jesus. 
He piles on phrase after phrase, trying to pull his readers up into a true knowledge of Jesus so that they would see him clearly. He says, riches of his glorious inheritance, immeasurable greatness of his power. He's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Do you just feel it getting stacked on and on? All things under his feet, head over all things, him who fills all in all. Would that we could actually comprehend this, what Paul's trying to communicate. But two things here with regard to our vision and this phrase, all in all. First, having our vision adjusted. You know, in Colossians, Paul says something similar. He says, set your mind on things above where Christ is, not on things below on earth. He's not saying ignore earth, but he's saying look at earth through the perspective of Jesus on the throne. And this reminds me of a scene in Pilgrim's Progress where the character Christiana is on her pilgrimage. And she's taken to a vision room, and she's shown a man with a muck rake, mucking, uh, raking the ground. And muck, mind you, is manure, so it's a pretty creative passage, despite being cleaned up by Bunyan. Um, over this man's downcast head with his muck rake stood somebody with a crown, wanting to crown this man. But the man could not look up. He could only focus on the sticks and the straw and the muck. And the interpreter tells Christiana how this, for some, or how this shows that for some, the heavenly realities are but fables, and only the earthly things down here below are real. And it shows how the earthly things here can take our heart away from God. And Christiana cries out famously, oh, deliver me from this muck rake. And Paul here in Ephesians is pulling our mind and hearts to focus on Jesus in the fullness of his ascended glory and the hope that we have there. He's seeking to save us from the muckrake of exclusive concern with the things of this world. We can fairly ask ourselves, what is my muckrake? What's the muck that I'm stuck in? What distracts me from the first things? What good things have I made ultimate? But second, this phrase, all in all, sticks out here in Ephesians for me. Now, Paul doesn't write overall here, but all in all, even though that overall is implied by a king on a throne. And I believe Paul's speaking of the method of Christ's rule, and that's a matter that Christ rules through a matter of inner conversion, not through dominating coercion. Prior to this passage in chapter 1, we read of God's plan to unite all things in him things in heaven and on earth. Or in verse 22, it says, all things will be under Jesus' feet. Jesus will be made head over all things. Or in chapter 4, Paul writes, Jesus ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And Paul is focusing us on how Jesus' power and glory is destined to permeate every aspect of our lives, every corner of culture and all of creation. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, as the psalmist puts it. We can fall into the false notion very easily that Jesus only changed a small swath of our life, some area of focused morality and piety, that it only really deals with the penalty and stain of sin, but nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus ascended to heaven so that he could fill all things and be all in all, so that he could renew every aspect of our lives from the inside out our sexual identity, our romantic relationships, our aesthetics, work, family, friendships, and so on, even our laws. 
and to restore all things, just as Rick talked about last week in Revelation 21. And his ascension allows him to do this because by the reason of the authority of being sitting at the throne of heaven, he's able to send his spirit to dwell on earth with us. And that'll be covered more next week when we celebrate Pentecost, the close relative of ascension. Now, we don't see it yet as it will be, but we have a taste in the spirit and in the church on occasion. And Paul's focusing us on this taste that we've had so that we can orient our lives correctly to seek to bring Christ more fully into all things. All in all is a movement of coherence from within. This coherence is not imposed from without, but originates within. It's much like a piece of music. Our son is learning minuet in G, and when we hear him practicing from the next room, when he strikes the errant note, it's immediately evident, and we have to tell him, try it over again. Or if we're gracious, we don't say anything. But each note fits, and um, each note fits. It's not like a foreign melody coming in, it's just that the note is out of place. And that's what the inner coherence of Christ looks like in our life. He's going to make every note strike correctly from the inside out. There'll be an inner coherence to all of us. When it says he'll fill all in all, that's what we're shooting at. Lastly, let's just talk about the king coronated and how he coronates us. It does no good, like I've said, for Jesus to have won the decisive victory over sin and death through his perfected life and his crucifixion and his resurrection unless he's crowned at his coronation, and the ascension marks that coronation. Sometimes in evangelical circles, we focus too narrowly on the sacrifice of Christ, and I think we should all catch that in our hearts. We might focus too much on the forgiveness of sins, on the sacrifice of Christ, on Christ as the Lamb of God, but the Lamb of God is also the King in heaven. That's a precious truth we need to hold on to. Just focusing on sin and forgiveness is inadequate. And it's inadequate because the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 says it too well, something that we marked at the beginning of our talk this morning, that the whole of creation is groaning. It's groaning. Groaning at the horror that threatens each week uh, to consume our minds. What we need is this king who can set things right, as we said earlier. And the ascension marks that coronation so that King Jesus can speak from the throne, behold, I'm making all things new. And in this passage in Acts, it's so wonderful that the angels come down right away and tell them, don't forget, he's coming back. <laughs> the king who goes up is coming back to earth to rule. But I want to close with this. A kingdom which opposes evil and opposes the horror is not only good news. It's also a threat. All evil will be expelled when this kingdom's rule and authority is finally established. And this is why, as Christians, it's so wonderful and I think necessary to pray those imprecatory psalms from the Psalter. We want Jesus to come back and expel all evil. That's the prayer of our hearts. You know how hard it is to get up on Sunday morning and pray imprecatory prayers? It ought not be so hard. We ought to do it all the time. Do you think Jesus sits passively by as he watches things unfold in our world? He doesn't. The reason he's coming back to judge is because it's evil and unspeakably so 
and we only have a little bit of an intro to it. And we should celebrate that, but we should also be terrified. We should be terrified because we participate in the evil ourselves. So when the kingdom is going to return and he's going to make all things new, we should tremble. But the wonder of Christ the King, the wonder of his utterly perfect and complete work, his death and resurrection, is that it culminates in his gracious invitation to come into the kingdom. Come, repent, be made new. This king who opposes all evil in the world around us and in our hearts is also inviting us to come and be remade new, to enter into the coherence that he has promised and he will bring. And when we turn to Jesus in this way, I tell you that a second coronation scene occurs. You see, right from the beginning of scriptures in Genesis, when God made humanity in his image, he coronated them for their work here on earth to bring justice and shalom. He put the throne on their head. And what we did in the rebellion was we took the throne off and we said, we will, we will crown ourselves. But it didn't work, and it hasn't worked. And the greatness of Jesus is that he comes down and bears the penalty for that rebellion so that he can crown us again and invite us back, not to rule over us, but he's inviting us to rule with him. He's again crowning us to rule with him for the goodness of all the earth. And this is a reality that we don't see fully in our lives now, but we can participate in it right now and watch it unfold through ourselves and through our brothers and our sisters here. We can watch the rule of Christ be extended over the world again because he's coronated you. All the men and women here that follow Christ have received their crown to rule over the earth again for the goodness of the earth. Paul says that in Jesus Christ, we are being restored in this image, this ruling image, from one degree of glory to the next. It's a participatory kingdom. The ascension of Christ allows him to invite us in. So friends, come. Come to this king and receive your own coronation as a daughter or son of the Most High God. Come and be renewed. Amen.